Next up is our game chat with Robin David. This episode was recorded on April the 1st, 2021. Welcome to the Game Chats edition of Design Talk. I'm Alan Higgins. I'm Hugh O'Mahony, and we're delighted to welcome Robin David today. Robin is a multi-published, multi-award winning game designer and has a range of games from interactive fiction to puzzle solving. Um, Robin, could you first tell us about yourself and your path to game design? Uh, Good morning. So I'm a teacher by trade, so in the daytime I work as a teacher. Game design for me has always just been a, a, a hobby on the side, but one that in recent years has kind of taken off a little bit and got a bit more of a life of its own. Probably my first game designs when I was maybe around 13, I remember making mods and levels and things for games like Half-Life and things in, things of that era. So I was always quite interested in how game design works and you know, how interactive experiences work. And then maybe about six or seven years ago, I discovered uh, modern board games, what we call like hobby board games, you know, so not Scrabble, not Monopoly, but more, more kind of weird things going on. Fell in love with the whole genre there, I suppose, and then began designing my own games, just, just playing around, experimenting with things. I reckoned I could do it. And uh, since then, I've been releasing games, releasing little downloadable experiments to begin with. I've self-published a few bigger games. I've had games also published in the more traditional route going through, you know, larger publishers like um, uh, Osprey Games published one of my games last year. So that was quite a big deal. It's in all the bookshops and things, you know. But yeah, started out as a hobby. I've kind of grown from there and kind of gone down lots of different avenues. And I'm still just kind of, I'm still experimenting today and seeing what I can figure out. That's cool. A teacher as well, because you know, like my first introduction to games is definitely through my um, early education, and like some of your games seem so like mentally taxing. Would you? Is there any interconnection between like your education and your games, like letterpress and stuff like that? Like, would you get your students to try test some of your games out ever? Um, no, not really. I mean, they are really? quite taxing. That's, I think that's the nature of the of the format, though. Board games, you know you have to implement all the rules yourself. So they generally are a bit more taxing than Mm. typical video games. And the challenge is getting that balance right, you know, so you can't do as much of a board game as you can do with a video game because because of that limitation. And so how much do you want to tax the player and how much do you want to just let them have fun with something? And if you get that balance right, then that's a a good game, you know? I don't don't personally see too much overlap with my teaching work. Um, Others might disagree, though. I don't know. Maybe it's snuck in there somehow. But definitely my most popular game is a is a, a word game. It's kind of like a more uh, modern version of Scrabble, I suppose. I mean, Scrabble's like 80 years old. So I made a word game that uses some more modern mechanics. And um, that's definitely the one that took off and has sold the most and been the most successful. And sure, I'm an English teacher, so there probably is an overlap there. There probably is some kind of input. Yeah, um, see the narrative game. So you have uh, your English teaching side maybe coming through to light there alan did you have a question yeah i was just going to ask i've observed this quite steady growth in board games and tabletop in the last number of years and i think it's symbiotic with the video games industry isn't it a kind of co-equal existence even though the value of the two segments is is wildly different 
But do you, how do you account for that? Or do you think this is just, do people want to be talking to each other and, and speaking with each other in person? I definitely think there's an overlap in the audiences there. Um, a lot of board gamers do play video games as well, myself included. And, you know, I even uh, make like uh, digital game design sometimes just for fun. There's definitely an overlap. It's, it tickles a, diff- a similar part of the brain, I suppose, except with board games, you do have that kind of social element, the in-person social element, which is really powerful. And uh, it's something we can't always get with video games. Another reason why I went into playing board games in the first place is because I used to love split-screen video games, you know, playing like Halo split-screen was just the greatest. And that's mostly gone now. It's maybe a bit of a resurgence, but for the most part, it doesn't really happen very much. So I think perhaps that's one of the reasons for the growth in board games. But also, the format has matured a lot in the past maybe 10 years, um, and the designs have just gotten so much more interesting so much more innovation going on in the board game space. It's a lot more visible, I think, in the board game space than it is in the video game space sometimes. We, we don't see as many kind of, you know, kind of rehashes and clones and things like that. Uh, we, the board game industry kind of rewards innovation much more strongly. So it's quite a cool space to be in. And I think that probably accounts for its growth. There's always something new to discover and always something interesting going on. Lots of little experiments and weird things, you know. So kickstarting funding is uh, obviously a goal for all game designers um, and then kind of recycling it like, and funding multiple games instead of just that one one to get you off the, you know, get you up and running. I don't think Kickstarter is the, is the goal necessarily. I think it's just a means to an end, you know. Uh, there are plenty of different ways to release a game. So I've released five games through Kickstarter now and they've all succeeded and, and done fine. But... In total, I've released about 20 games, and uh, it's just one of the methods you can use. So you can just release games straight into the public, direct release. With video games, it's quite straightforward, especially if it's a small project because there are no upfront costs with it. With a board game, you can release like a downloadable title, so something people can download and print and assemble by themselves. Or if it's like a a role-playing game, they can just play it off the screen of their phone or their computer. Or you can take the traditional publishing route, so you can go to a bigger publisher and pitch your game, and then they can fund it themselves, you know, distribute it themselves. Um, Kickstarter is a useful one if you want to do, if you want to retain control of your project. So, for example, I released Movable Type, uh, which is my word game. I actually did that twice on Kickstarter. The first time was a very, very small project, had a, a low funding goal. They got a few hundred people backing it, which was enough for me to do the initial print run. Uh, which is the problem with making board games is you have to have minimum order quantities, you know, it's like 500 units or something. I did that. It sold out the first edition and then I remade the second edition. So like worked on the mechanics a little bit, added some extra elements to the game. The second edition did much better. And then the third version of it, which is called Letterpress, that was signed to a traditional publisher. They didn't go through Kickstarter. So Kickstarter is just one, one means to the, to an end goal, you know. Also with, with board games, Kickstarter is more, you've, you've made the game before you go to Kickstarter. Board games don't succeed unless the game has already been finished. Um, so you have to design it first, play test it, have a finished product, and then you take it to Kickstarter. It's a bit different from the digital space where you can go with more of a concept, you know? Um, so in terms of that journey, you've already done this great big chunk of it. The game design is all done. Usually the artwork is mostly done. You go to Kickstarter, you raise the funds for the manufacturing. And then 
it's a, a different type of journey from there on. So working with manufacturers and dealing with production samples and things is a whole different kind of experience. And quite rightly, a lot of designers don't want to do it because it's an enormous headache. Right now, I've got a game, uh, Lose on Rails, which is just finished manufacturing. Um, it's in China right now, and it's been loaded onto a, a boat <laughs> to come to Ireland. And so the past couple of weeks watching the news has been horrifying for me uh, as the Suez Canal got blocked up, you know. So it's a whole different experience. It's full of all its kind of different stresses. So, in a, you know, in the end of this month, I'm going to have all of these boxes arriving at my house and dealing with customs officials and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I don't think Kickstarter is, a, is necessarily the end goal. It can be if you want it to be, if you want to retain control. With Lose on Rails, I wanted, it was a game that I loved. I couldn't get a publisher to, to jump on board with it. I knew I wanted to release it, so I decided to take it on myself. With other games that I've made, for example, uh, Judean Hammer, that's a historical game about uh, the Maccabean revolt in, in Judea. So a bit more of a cerebral kind of thinky game. And I wasn't confident that I could publish that myself and have it be successful because I don't, I wanted to have somebody else join in with the development work of the game, you know, um, somebody with more experience in kind of historical and these kind of cerebral simulation games. So that one I sold to a publisher or a license to a publisher, and then they did a Kickstarter themselves without my involvement. It is super useful like to cover the manufacturing costs, but also for myself, it's a way of getting orders and pre-orders, you know. The biggest difficulty with board games is reaching your audience. It's a physical product, and getting it into the hands of players and letting them play it and letting word of mouth spread is the, is the toughest part. I've released some games as downloadable games, and they've been downloaded by about 10 people and been completely ignored and disappeared into the, you know, the internet somewhere. Um, and Kickstarter lets you get that kind of, gets eyes on your project and get people excited about it, as well as providing money. So it's got, it's got multiple uses there, marketing, raising funds, and taking some of the stress away. Having said that, running a Kickstarter campaign is loads and loads of work. Lose on Rails, which I ran in October, I think, last year, was enormously stressful. Uh, lots and lots of fires to put out and things to deal with. And you, it was for 400 orders in the end. So you have to wonder, like, if it's worth it, I'm not sure. Um, but maybe those will turn into something else down the line, you know. Those 400 people will show their games to people, and I think I'll start getting that momentum to make the whole project worth it. I've heard it said that you don't go to Kickstarter without at least having 400 of your own contacts that you're bringing to the, the party. How, how much of that market that you addressed through Kickstarter was your personal um, contacts uh, network, your social network, or how much of it was was Kickstarter's ecosystem? Uh, I think I can look that up for you right now and tell you the real figures if you want. Okay. Uh, because off the top of my head, I wouldn't really know. Let me log in here and see. Yeah, I mean, marketing is, is definitely my weak point. So uh, this is Luz on Rails. Luz on Rails, sorry. Um, just shy of 400 backers. Uh, so they raised just over 9,000 euros and then they take their fees to about 10% or 8% or something. And then, so I'm left with about 8,000 something. I can take that 8,000 something, pay the manufacturer, pay whatever art costs I have and editing costs and things like that. Shipping and then, costs. Shipping, oh my God, shipping costs. Yeah. 
they went up by 30% since I placed the order. And then uh, this one doesn't include the uh, delivery costs to the backers. So in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be emailing them all with the updated delivery costs, and they'll have to chip in an extra, you know, 15 euros each or something. You can see, like, how there's a goal that I wanted to hit. I think it was 1,800 or something like that, which would be the minimum cost to produce so many copies of it. The initial plan was to do them by hand, and then uh, I had enough backers that I went to a manufacturer instead and did the more complex but higher quality production. Yeah, it's quite a healthy little curve there. It's quite, I mean, this initial stretch here is so stressful. (laughs) You're not sure if you're going to make the money. When you press the button here, it's horrifying. You don't know what's going to happen. Twitter is mainly where I do most of my promotional stuff. You see how successful that is. Only 31 people. Email and Twitter, maybe profile saved will be the, will be the ones that are from my audience. So we're looking at about a hundred people that I brought directly to the campaign. And then the rest would have been just from various stuff, you know, so maybe they saw it on somebody else's social media. Maybe they saw it on, you can play like a, a digital demo of this. So maybe they played the digital demo first, you know, and discovered it that way. Maybe they saw it on Board Game Geek, which is the, the big board game database online. Quite a lot of them just come through discovery though. So if you just, if you just go to the project page, you can just kind of browse around all the tabletop games. A lot of people just come through this, you know. So once you're on the platform, if you've got a bit of momentum, for instance, I, I funded on day one. So I had a bit of momentum, which kind of puts me quite high up on this list of 27, 28,000 projects, which is a nice place to have. People will just kind of scroll through here and see what kind of grabs their attention, you know. So you get a lot just by being on the platform, which I guess makes it worth that 8% cut that they take, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. So you do bring people, you have to bring some some people. But some people, yeah. 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 And right. I've, done that, I've done that by, I mean, I've been on Twitter for about seven years or something, but I think I've mainly done that by releasing other games in the past. And I've, you know, been able to bring my audience from other digital games that I've released or other uh, Kickstarters that I've run or four that I've run. So, for example, Movable Type had almost 600 backers. And so when Lose on Rails went live, they would have all got an email automatically saying like, hey, why don't you support this creator again? Here's his new project. They're wildly different kinds of games, though. So hoping for an overlap in those audiences is... Uh, Quite a tough one, I think. But, you know, I definitely have some people um, go for that overlap. You can see Movable Type actually did twice. The first version was very rough and ready, the first one was. And then the second edition was very, very nice, fancy box and things, you know. And I actually had the art director from Rockstar Games work on this game with me, which was amazing. It's called Alistair Wood. And he just, like, knocks out this amazing uh, line art to use in the game. And then this is my first one. This is like a practice game that I did. A very, very tiny one, just $12 to buy the game and no shipping costs for the backers, just for me to experiment using the Kickstarter platform. But yeah, all of these guys would have kind of fed into this each subsequent campaign. The same would be for my downloadable games. I've got some very, very popular games that I've released just as downloadables, like role-playing games or little mini kind of solitaire games. And they've got quite big audiences. And again, when I release Lose on Rails, I send out an email, an update, you know, I've got a new project. Do you want to see it? And it'll grab some people's attention. Yeah. So nothing is wasted. I've got a couple of questions. Some of these questions relate to the logistics. There is print on demand, which is what I did for the first movable type. It's much higher cost per unit 
But the real way to make a profit in board games is to make like a thousand copies of something, you know, because then the price per unit really comes down. With Liz on Rails, you saw my initial goal was 1,800, which would have made me a hundred copies of the game. And each copy was going to cost 17 euros to manufacture. And then I raised enough where I was able to go to a manufacturer in China and ask them to do me a, a mass manufacturer of the game. And that really, really dragged the price. The price per unit really, really came down with that, you know. I think it's now about $12, 12 euros per unit, all included. And they're doing a much nicer job than the handmade copies would have been. They're making, like, nice thick cards and a, and a mounted board and a nice box and everything, you know. So... Dropshipping isn't really a thing in board games, but there is dropshipping style things that happen. You can look at print and demand games. So companies like uh, Blue Panther or Drive Through Cards will make individual copies as you get the orders. But it's terribly inefficient in terms of cost. I remember you telling me once um, at one of the tabletop gatherings, mm. and we were talking about production. With us on Rails, I was initially going to use a company in Italy to make the cards and then a different company to make the board and a different company to produce all the, all the wooden components. And it let me do a small quantity of games, but a much higher cost. Yeah. And it is, a, it is a struggle. Like sometimes you do make, you get a prototype back and the colors are all wrong. You know, they're a complete mess. Uh, maybe it's my fault. Sometimes dealing with physical prints is always quite tricky to get the right color balance. They have very technical requirements that a lay person struggles to meet sometimes. They use different, uh, you know, when we're making games on our computers and, you know, we're making digital games, we have to use like the RGB color profile, right? When it goes to a printer, they use CMYK, which is a completely different set of color options that you even got there, you know? Like, uh, it's very difficult to have like vivid and bright colors in a board game sometimes because of that. So yeah, quality control can be difficult. It's, Best, I think, to go with one manufacturer for the whole lot and they can kind of take responsibility for it. Yeah, that's def- that's a challenge. I wish I had an answer. The best way to, the best way to go around it, I guess, is just to get samples and work, try, try and get a personal relationship as well with the manufacturers and they'll help you out. So currently mm-hmm. I'm working with a company called Wingo Games in China and they're really, really nice in that the my... The engineer I'm working with keeps on sending me little updates and photographs of what's going on and things. I'm sure we'll see, like, in a month's time when they arrive. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe they look terrible, but I don't think they will. They seem to be doing quite a good job. Um, So when you're trying to find, like, your creative process to develop a game, so your, like, your thoughts and how to come up with a new game, what works for you in that sense? Do you try to put deadlines in front of yourself or do you brainstorm or... How do, you, how do you do the creative process? There are loads of different ways of going into it, and I don't particularly have one set way. It depends wherever inspiration strikes, I suppose. Like I said, this is mainly a, a hobby for me. It's a side gig. It's not my full-time work. Sometimes I'll be playing a game and I think, I, I wish this game did that instead. I did this. Maybe I should make the game that does this. So, for example, I love Scrabble, and I used to play it when I was in university all the time. But Scrabble's 70 years old, and it's got some awful aspects to it, in my opinion. You know, um, if you're playing like you know with more than two players, you could be waiting 15 minutes for your turn sometimes. You know, and so I thought, you know, I want to make a version of Scrabble which doesn't have these pitfalls to it. You know, doesn't reward like two-letter words 
and doesn't have this lots of waiting around and doesn't have you counting points all the time and things, you know? So that's why I made movable type, which was tried to address all those different issues and to make something that was kind of fast and snappy. And it, it has, it can have up to six players at the same time. And it, it only takes 20 minutes to play. I think it did succeed, which is why it got republished there. So sometimes that'll be the approach I'll take. How can I improve a game? Sometimes I wish there was a game that was like this. You know, I wish there was a game that was, you know, for example, I wish there was a role-playing game, which was super, super fast. And let me focus on playing a character rather than tracking statistics and numbers and, you know, percentage chances to hit and things like that. So I made Weird Fiction, which was an attempt to make the game that I wanted to play. But Weird Fiction is actually, it's, um, it's like Buffy the Vampire Slayer told really fast and focus on the character, which is the game I want to play, you know? Sometimes it's a thematic thing. So maybe I want a game about spaceships and I want it to be, you know, I'm making right now a game which is about post-scarcity society, which is what you had in Star Trek, you know, where there's no way they have the replicators and things and no one has to have personal possessions. I wanted to make a game that was about that. And I don't think there are any. I don't think there are any games that are, that don't have resources being tracked in them and things, the space games, you know? So maybe it's a thematic approach that I take. Maybe it's mechanical. So maybe I want to make a certain kind of word game or maybe it could be uh, an experience as well. So maybe I want a game that makes players feel fear, for example. So then I'll start thinking about what can I do to create a game that's scary? Like, how do you make a scary tabletop game? It's really, really hard. I tried making a scary tabletop game and it ended up being a really funny tabletop game. So, but yeah, I take, I don't have a set approach. Maybe when I first started out, I tried to have one, but now, you know, I've got a good bit of experience now and I can kind of just figure out what I want to do today and then kind of just feel around it and see if something will be a success or not. You know, I've got a better grasp of what's worth spending time on now, but it's not really a set approach. I'm sorry. Can't give you a concrete answer on that. Could I chip in there? And what you're doing that maybe is different to what I'm doing is that you're investing a day in it and maybe going down that, you're actually responding to that twitch, that that itch do you see. Absolutely, yeah. Something. Keep keep loads of notes. I've got in my wherever the boiler is in my flat, I've got a big shelf just full of note full of notepads. And every now and then I might just go back to the notepads. And like I've been doing this for about seven years, so there's loads and loads in there. And I'll just go back and I'll just go and steal some old ideas. And lots of it is just like, how about a game where the cards are passed around like this? And that's all the notes are. But you can go back and look at it and kind of go, oh, I'm a different person now, you know, and I've had this other idea in my mind for a while. Maybe I can combine these two disparate kind of things and see what comes. I actually had a recent experience like this where, so I live in Maynooth. And one problem we have in Maynooth is nimbyism which is people refusing to let houses be built and things like this, you know, houses and any kind of development gets re- gets rejected here. And so I wanted to make a game about nimbyism. I started thinking about nimbyism and I started developing mechanics and this whole thing about, you know, players would be trying to force develop, you know, you'd be, you'd be a town council and you'd be trying to force developments on other town councils, you know, trying to avoid them yourself. And it was going to be a big joke about this kind of this kind of problem. You know, you'd have like nuclear power plants and I'd try and force it into Alan's town and not into mine. But then like cycle routes come up and I'm like, do I want cycle routes? No. <laughs> no one like this is how this is this is how they work, isn't it? They don't want anything. So this game is about pushing things away and giving it to other people and but then they would get 
maybe the, the, the group that takes the prison will get loads of money, you know, stuff like this. And so I had this game, I was developing it, developing it, and I just kind of got bored of it. And I thought, you know, if I'm kind of bored of this, then I think other people will be too. So I kind of put it on the wayside and when I started working on other projects. A few months ago, I was reading about ancient Rome. I was reading about Caesar's civil war, which is when Caesar, they had the triumvirate. Triumvirate? Triumvirate? Triumvirate. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they had the triumvirate. And then it fell apart and they had a civil war, right? And then Caesar crossed the Rubicon and then Pompeii. They went on for years. And it spread across the whole, the whole Roman Empire with all kind of fighting each other to see who would be who would end up in charge. And Caesar was like the religious leader and Pompeii was the military leader. And they all had the factions going for them and things. And I thought, so cool, all these little like locations getting involved, you know, and trying to go one way or the other. What can I do with this? And I just pulled out the NIMBYism game took all the mechanics from that, didn't change a thing, and just replaced everything with Caesar and Pompeii and all the different locations around the Italian Empire, uh, the Roman Empire, sorry. And it works really well, you know? So I have lots of half-finished games. I've got books full of them and folders on my computer full of half-finished games. And then I'll just go and plagiarize from myself, which is allowed. <laughs> uh, and uh, sometimes that works out really well in my favor. Again, I forgot what the original question was. I'm sorry. No, that's great. And, <laughs> and I'm interrupting you again, Hugh, but I think you've kind of touched on the last question we were going to ask, which was how um, how valid it is to reskin a mechanic to a different thematic. And I think you've touched on that um, perfectly. I, I was, was impressed by Matt Leacock's pandemic because I love the underlying mechanic there for the virus. But I really hate the way it applies in, in Forbidden Island. And I see you've kind of done this a couple of times with your own games that you've taken an, a concept and applied it in a different con a setting. Well, I love Forbidden Island. It's one of my favorite games. Sorry. <laughs> Think about like, if you look at pandemic, for example, and they have all of the reskins and the reskin is, is, is not a very nice way of putting it kind of like reimagining, I suppose, because still a lot of work that goes into it, into making a new game there and changing the theme of it. They all kind of keep the same feel though. Right. So he's got the mechanics, but what they what they really support is that is that tension in the game, and so I don't think you can take it and just apply it to anything. You know, you can't just have like a circus game using the pandemic mechanics. So you are constrained a bit. You know, my NIMBYism game to the to the Caesar Civil War game. It's still about two warring factions who you know are trying to push or pull on different things. So it's not a wildly enormous change, but there are definitely. Sometimes you'll find a mechanical twist, which you find that you can keep on reusing. Uh, so Matt Leacock with his intensifying thing where he puts the deck back on top of, the discard pile back on top of the deck, is a really incredible bit of design. It's so simple in retrospect, but it's an incredible piece of design, which he's been able to reuse and kind of elaborate on for all these different kind of purposes. I've done similar things. I quite, in, if you've played Let's Press on Movable Type, you'll see that I've got this thing where instead of scoring points, you add cards to a special pile. At the end of the game, you, you use the cards in your pile to do like a, an amazing move. I think it's quite a cool little mechanic, and I've not really seen it very much in other games. Uh, so that's something that I find that I go back to quite a lot because people quite, find it quite refreshing and enjoyable. And um, it kind of rewards kind of like planning and thinking ahead and, and um, sometimes doing like a Hail Mary approach can be quite fun with that kind of mechanic involved. So I've reused that a few times. 
I love games that have drafting in them, so passing cards around. So I'll often think like, is there a way I can incorporate drafting into my game or different kinds of drafting? I don't know if I do so many uh, reskins or rethemes, not once the game has been finished. There was quite a big example when I did, I had a, pr- I had a print and play game, so a downloadable game called Bento Blocks, which was like bingo crossed with Tetris. And uh, the initial design was about making Japanese lunchboxes. So, so very, very kind of like flippant and silly. And players would be like playing bingo and stealing these different Tetris shapes and putting them into their lunchboxes and things. And then when it came to selling that to a publisher, so I, I licensed that game to Runes Editions, a French company. They just said, ah, no one's going to buy a game about Japanese lunchboxes. And they completely rethemed the game to um, graffiti competitions. So a complete change in the theme, complete change in the tone, no change in the game mechanics. And it actually works better. Their theme fits the mechanics much better. So sometimes you just need that fresh approach, you know. And that's actually the benefit as well of going to, not doing it through Kickstarter, going through a publisher, is that you can have that kind of new way of looking at things and that development team, the experienced development team, help you out and make sure your game's a bit more refined a bit of a better match perhaps for its theme or for its mechanics. So I think we'll close it up now. We'd like to thank you so much, Robin, for coming in and sharing your knowledge and insights into the business of games and game design. Okay. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Hugh O'Mahony for acting as the lead interviewer and thanks to the Game Design class in UCB for providing the setting for this interview. Sound editing by Alan Higgins. The music used for the intro outro was Juno Her by Uncle Milk. For more details, see the show notes and acknowledgements.